Welcome to the Grace Story Podcast, where inspiring stories are brought to life. This podcast is made possible by Grace College and Seminary, located on the shores of Winona Lake in the great state of Indiana. I'm your host, Dr. Drew Flam. This is the Grace Story Podcast. Our guest today on the podcast is Caitlin Beatty. She first learned as an undergrad at Calvin College where she edited the student newspaper and genuinely looked forward to writing papers that she was interested in words. After studying theology at Oxford University, she landed her first job at Christianity Today magazine. She would go on to launch a women's website, Hermeneutics, and become the magazine's youngest and first female managing editor. Very impressive. But lest you think it's all been upward and onward, at age 27, she went through a major life event that shook her identity. So naturally, she decided to write a book about work, vocation, and identity, which came out in 2016 from Simon & Schuster. She speaks regularly on work and vocation, writing, culture, and politics, including speaking just this morning to students on Grace College's campus. She's written for The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and many others on topics like politics, gender, and theology, and has commented on faith and culture for CNN, ABC, NPR, Associated Press, and many others. When she's not doing all things with words, she enjoys spending time exploring Brooklyn, reading karaoke, tweeting snarky observations, international travel, and acquiring books for Brazos Press. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So my first question is, uh, when I read about the snarky Twitter comments, <laughs> I had to go on and see. Um, and one of the latest ones was about you're, you're headed from Chicago to Paris this yes. weekend. Yes. And there's a little worry about the weather. So how do you feel? Are you prepared? Have you seen the weather reports? Well, I've looked at the weather reports like a dozen times. <laughs> of course, that doesn't affect the actual weather. Um, so at this point, I you know, pack to carry on should I be stranded in the airport overnight and just praying that I get home in time to then leave for Paris in a few days. You're from the Midwest, so you know how unpredictable our weather can be. Yeah, and it can be unpredictable in a good way because now there's all this hubbub about all the snow that's supposed to descend upon the Midwest, but it could be like an inch. Exactly. So yes. it's hard to say at this point. Which makes my kids very disappointed when they hear they're going to get to go sledding tomorrow and then I have to tell them, sorry, it didn't actually snow as much as those meteorologists said. So I right. hope... I hope that's the case for your sake, that you're able to get out of here. (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you for coming to campus. And I know you spoke just this morning in chapel. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, what you spoke on and why. Sure. So I have spoken to a lot of college students over the years about ambition, because I think ambition is an important quality and even an important virtue. But I think we don't always talk about ambition as a positive Thing And obviously there are biblical passages that warn about ungodly ambition or selfish ambition. And it's not hard to think of examples of ambition gone wrong. But I also think ambition can be a drive toward excellence in our work. If we're students, a drive toward excellence in our um, studies, in our papers. And just doing all things with excellence can be a way to honor God when we get out into the workforce, uh, ambition can be a way that we bless our neighbors, our coworkers, our cities. 
Tim Keller is a pastor in New York. He talks about Christians being a counterculture for the common good. Mm -hmm. I think it could be a form of witness if there are Christians in every sector of society, every professional sphere that are doing their work with excellence, but also with honesty, with care, with respect for their colleagues um, and working to serve rather than to gain for themselves. So so I, I tried to... Uh, paint a picture of godly ambition and hope that the students can take that with them as they head out into the real world, so to speak. I had a mentor once who would talk about, you know, um, students need to be the best bankers, best teachers, best psychologists, best nurses, best best doctors who also happen to be Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And sometimes we flip that and say, be a Christian this or a Christian that, but really just be the best that that you can be right um and do it well and and people will figure out the the christian part as well mm-hmm. your motivation your, where that ambition comes from ultimately right right so uh your story is one of ambition um <laughs> as youngest editor of christianity today so uh, would you say that ambition was something you were kind of born with and you were a go-getter from the beginning or was there a, a place in time where you're like it clicked for you. Tell, tell me about how ambition looked in your life. Yes. So I shared a story in chapel this morning about uh, my, my family's from Ohio and we would go visit my grandparents about once a month in Cincinnati. We would drive down from Dayton. And whenever we visited my grandparents, they would have this little saying about me. They would say, oh, that Kate, she's going places. <laughs> and I, I don't truly remember what I was doing doing or what kind of gave them the reason to say that. But I think they were picking up something in me maybe as a student who wanted to get good grades or, you know, I was in, I was taking piano lessons and I, I wanted to do the best that I could there or I was in band. I mean, whatever I was doing, I wanted to do it to the best of my ability. Yeah. I'm sure we could talk about oldest child dynamics and family (laughs) expectations and parents' expectations. But yeah, I would say that carried on into undergrad at Calvin and also into my work at Christianity Today that I wanted to really show up and give my daily work my all in Mm -hmm. terms of focus and concentration and making articles better and making the magazine better. Um, And I think that, you know, that has served me well. It also has um, its downsides, I think, um, for Christians thinking about Sabbath and rest and Mm. finding your value apart from what you accomplish in a given day is really important. Um, That's really hard for me. Um, I kind of have a to-do list every day and I really want to hit everything on my list. And if I don't, I feel bad about myself. And what is that about? You know, Um, I think... Uh, a drive for um, excellence in your work can easily become you find your ultimate value in your work. Mm. And I think, you know, professional work is is a wonderful um, investment. I also think we're not made for work alone. Mm. Um, and knowing ourselves to be beloved and delighted in apart from what we accomplish and however impressive our title is or how much money we make or whether people know our names. I mean, it's it's really important to protect from all of that and to stay rooted in your belovedness in Christ. What are some practical ways, because I have the first child syndrome myself, 
Um, and you know, I know those things. Like I know sure. Sabbath is good and I know like my identity in Christ and as his son and I can't do anything to to affect that one way or another. But mm-hmm. but yet like on a daily basis mm. I still struggle with get the to do I mean, I wake up, just get the to do list done, mm-hmm. go, 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 ambition, you know. Um are there any practical ways that you've learned to practice in your life to help yourself mm. rest? Mm-hmm and recognize where your true identity comes from. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not very good at this, but these are (laughs) things that other people have recommended to me that I think make a lot of sense. So I know people who do kind of a fixed hour prayer during the day. So having breaks during your workday where you, you step out of the office, maybe you go for a walk, you turn off your phone and it's a 10 or 15 minute rest and silence with God. Um, I know, you know, technology can be a great benefit to us. It can also keep us feeling like we're on all the time. I mean, especially for those of us who have a lot of email to answer or have to know what's going on in the news cycle, making sure that we have rhythms where we're keeping technology in its proper place and it's not making demands on us, um, that humanly speaking, we can't, we can't supply. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for me, it's it's really important to invest in friendships and relationships that have nothing to do with work, um, you know, rem- remembering either through like relationship with family or with close friends or people at church that these people reflect back to me my value apart from what I accomplish. Hmm. They don't really know what I do during my work day. Yeah. They're not there to say, oh, I well, well done. Good job. It's we delight in you because of who you are apart from your accomplishments or uh, whether you got things done on your to-do list today. Mm -hmm. I think rooting in those kinds of healthy relationships is, is really good. Their value is not on what your resume looks like or what you did this week. It's just, you're their friend and and that's enough. Right. That's good. Not, not easy. Um, And I'm Mm -hmm. with you. I'll take all the tips and practices because that is so difficult to do. Yeah. You mentioned kind of finding your calling and ambition in college, um, which is maybe one of the reasons why you get invited to speak to college students a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us, like, uh, were you a word person, you know, all growing up and even in high school? And like, was that kind of the ambition and drive when you went to Calvin mm. for undergrad? Uh, or was it discovered there? Um, and and then how did you say, yes, that's it? Mm-hmm. So if my parents were here, they would say, yes, I was always a word person (laughs) because I was, quote unquote, very verbal as a child. Um, Yes. I mean, reading, writing, language arts, anything in that realm came very naturally to me. Science made no sense. Math I was okay at. But all that to say, that seemed to emerge as kind of a natural pathway forward when I graduated high school and went to Calvin and um, studied communications and also started working on the student newspaper, realized at some point in college that I really liked writing papers, (laughs) which is not the universal college. Uh I mean, not all papers, but with classes where I was like naturally interested in the topic, I really enjoyed writing research papers because it was a way of learning and it was a way of organizing my thoughts and kind of making an argument about a specific topic. So I think um, the positive experience of working on the student newspaper and 
writing columns where other students would respond and say, hey, thanks for saying that, or that was a great article, or I'm really glad, you know, somebody somebody put it out there. Um, having that and then just realizing that the way that I learn and the way that I understand the world is primarily through writing. I think those were two kind of key indicators that that something in communications, hopefully with a writing component, would be a good fit in terms of a profession. And I feel very fortunate that that led to a job at Christianity Today. I think it's what I try to warn people who want to be writers who or who are starting out in their writing career is that it can be very hard to um, sustain a full-time job in writing alone. Mm-hmm. Most people I know who write either combine that with another element of a job. So when I worked at Christianity Today, most of my time was spent editing and then maybe 10% was writing. Or they have a full-time job that has nothing to do with writing but it leaves enough margin in the rest of their life to write on the side. Mm. So I think it's it's rare that people can only only like the best writers or like New York Times bestsellers can just write. <laughs> yeah. Um, or you could marry someone who makes a lot of money and then they can fund <laughs> your writing career. There you go. I have friends for whom that has happened as well. Um, so yeah, just to be realistic about articles don't usually pay very much. Um, you know, book contracts can be hard to acquire. Like there's just a lot there that, um, it can be deflating, I think when you're starting out. So don't do it for, um, the love of money. Absolutely not. (laughs) You do it for the love of writing. Yes. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, is going into that first job, right? You're at a a Christianity Today, and I worked at a, a, a large Christian organization, my first job out of, of college as mm-hmm. well. And, um, you know, first eight to five, like what, mm. how did you adjust, <laughs> um, you know, one, you saw a, probably a different side of Christianity in general, mm-hmm. um, but also like just adjusting to the workplace mm-hmm. um, from college, which is a very different schedule and yeah. moving into this venue where it's no longer, you know, like I just get to write what I want to write. It's, mm-hmm. you know, hey, you have deadlines, you have editing, you have, you know, expectations put upon you. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that adjustment and what <laughs> advice, you know, are you giving students about that adjustment into the world of work? Oh man. That's a hard adjustment. I mean, I I mean the universal answer is coffee, like coffee <laughs> helps. Um, I would say what was helpful for me, one thing that was helpful for me as I started at CT was finding other people in entry level positions mm. who were kind of also coming out of college and creating a community within the institution. Yeah. So most of my colleagues on the magazine side had been there for 20 years were, you know, several years older. Almost all of them were older men. We weren't probably going to go out to lunch, but finding other, you know, 25 year olds who would get together for lunch or go play games in the break room. I think um, having that kind of community and then they also became people I could talk to about specific dynamics in the workplace, Sure, you know, so that was very helpful. Um, I think, a lot of college students, and I maybe was guilty of this as well, 
expect that their first job be a perfect alignment with their passions and whatever they studied. And it's rare that that works out for people. I mean, even in specialized programs like medicine or pre-med, sometimes you just have to put in the time to get to do what you really want. And I would say the first two years at Christianity Today, I didn't I mean, I was copy editing. It was fine. I certainly wasn't passionate about copy editing, but the sense was, look, I, this is my task. This is what I've been given to do. It's an important job. It's, it's a really important job for a magazine. No, it's not glamorous, but I'm going to put in my time. I'm going to contribute to the good of this publication. Mm-hmm. And as I continued to do that, more opportunities opened up. And I know that's not universally true, but sure. I do think there is something about just learning the life skills of um, setting deadlines for yourself, time management, showing up to work on time, getting enough sleep, um, not staying up too late, all the things that maybe you created habits around in college, those don't always work in a nine to five culture. Yes. And so you have to break some habits and make some new ones to be a healthy functioning adult and contributor to the workforce. Yes. I look back sometimes now on my, 24 25 year old self and i'm like what was i thinking wearing sandals to the workplace thinking that was i was like i had khakis on you know i mean that's better than the way i dressed in college but yeah oh so many so many ways i could have Mm -hmm. learned and benefited from some professional education prior to going into the workplace it's really it's life skills yes and i think i mean i assume every college has some kind of career services department or you know some kind of center that is created to help students transition. But I think, you know, even beyond learning how to apply for a job or go in for an interview, we need things like, here's what to wear and not what to wear. (laughs) You know, or like, here's how to write a professional email. Um, Here's how to have a professional conversation over the phone, like really basic life skills that will serve you well for the rest of your life in the workforce. Yes. One of the things, uh, you know, you moved up, you may have had to slog away at work. You didn't love that first two years, but you moved up quick, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, which is ambition, right, is what Mm. you talked about with Mm -hmm. our students. Um, You you watered the grass where you were at, and you grew and and moved up quick. Um, As a young professional then who was in a place of managing others Mm -hmm. um how did you go about learning that skill set you now have Mm. people who are working with you or for you that are older um who maybe have more experience on paper Mm -hmm. Uh, tell us about how that dynamic and what you learned (laughs) you're asking like really good questions that could be I could go too deep into these. <laughs> so No names, please. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Of course, of concepts. course. <laughs> that was by far probably the hardest dimension of my time at Christianity Today. I mean, I was there for 10 years. and the last four years, I was in a management role. And one, I think there are people who are uniquely gifted for management, mm-hmm. for training up other employees and growing other employees. And I didn't feel like I was given those skills per se. I mean, my supervisor, my boss helped me on a regular basis with certain dynamics that would come up. But um, just because I was a decent editor didn't necessarily mean I was going to be a great manager. So that was a huge learning curve for me. 
Um, I think certainly having the support of my superiors and them saying, look, Caitlin is managing the magazine and yes, she's relatively young and some of you have been here longer, but this is the decision that we've made. Um, that certainly helped me to knowing that I had institutional support and backing. Um, I certainly benefited from meeting with other managers to learn kind of best practices. Mm. How to how do you navigate conflict? How do you give? Sometimes you have to give negative feedback. What's the best way to go about that? Um, so just having input from other managers, and then I think I mean as a baseline. If you treat people with respect, most people will react in kind. And wanting to see the gifts and talents of my coworkers and have them know that I respected their work and respected them as colleagues. And even if we had really different skill sets or different interests, that everybody on the team is valuable. Everybody has a, a really valuable part to play. Hmm. And that's so much of what our 20s, even into our 30s are, is this learning what we're good at and mm. where we need growth areas and being okay with trying different things out and seeing what works and what doesn't work and what ways God has gifted us. Mm -hmm. And you made that big switch then um, to uh, moving on to becoming a book writer um, when you wrote your first book, A Woman's Place, in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, what what made the decision like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to go out and say it like I'm going to yeah. I'm going to step out um, and write the book. And and I'm OK with the criticism that is to come. Uh -huh. um, I, I, tell us a little bit about yeah. that decision making process. Yeah. Well, I'm one of those annoying people who goes around saying, I just know I have a book inside of me waiting to come out. <laughs> and not everybody who says that like actually has a book that should come out. And I'm one of those people who wants to write a book, but nobody wants to hear from me and I don't know what I would talk about. So, yeah. Um, but yes, I, I would say, you know, even while I was at CT, I mean, I wrote the book itself when I was still working at Christianity sure. Today. And I think a book as a form of communication has the power to shape hearts and minds in a way that probably a magazine article or a blog post doesn't just because of the literal shelf life of a book. I mean, mm -hmm. ideally it will sit on someone's shelf and be there to engage and re-engage and contribute to a broader conversation for years to come. So that was that in and of itself was, was appealing to me as a writer. Um, I think when the book came out, it was the same year that I, decided to leave Christianity today, which I know surprised some people. My parents were like, wait, what? How are you going to make money? How are you going to support yourself? I don't know, mom and dad. Um, but I, I, one, there was an experience of having like a spiritual confirmation. Um, and so I felt a freedom to move on. But two, I think one of the things that happens when you work for an organization or an institution is that you for better or worse, represent them to other people. Yes. And I was always happy to represent Christianity today because my values and goals and beliefs more or less aligned with CT. But I also wanted the experience of striking out on my own and maybe saying something that there wasn't necessarily space to say at CT. And that was risky for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also 
exciting. Um, and some of that was practical, just having the time to do speaking engagements and write more for other publications. Um, and also just, I had been at the magazine for 10 years at that point, and it was my first job out of college and feeling like I kind of want to see what else is out there. I think I've done good work here. I've, I've put in a lot of good time and energy and have contributed. And also I want to see what else might be out there. As a writer, you, you write things that are criticized. I mean, that's (laughs) kind of part of it, right? I mean, um, you're going to have people who agree and people who don't agree. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's true with any of us. The more Mm -hmm. leadership you gain in an organization, the more criticism you're going to take. The more you're out front in whatever career path you take, the more criticism that you're going to take. Mm -hmm. Uh, How have you learned to deal with the criticism that comes from putting something out there Mm -hmm. that you expect it to be criticized? But how do do you deal with that? Mm. It's a good man. I mean, these are really good questions. I'm just going to reiterate that. So, well, first, I, I just want to affirm your observation that to write anything of significance is to open yourself up to criticism because to make a value statement one way or the other means you're you're taking a stand oftentimes on really controversial or touchy subjects. People have very strong opinions about these things, but to say anything of value means you can't please everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I've had to work through dynamics of people pleasing and um, learning to ultimately write things that I think honor God and, and um, honor his people and try to help his people knowing that not everybody sees it the same way. Hmm. Um, I think just more practically having other writer friends who I can talk to about these dynamics because anyone who writes publicly has encountered criticism of one form or another, knowing how they have navigated that, just being there to support one another or to vent or to say like, this person is coming after me and I don't know why and I don't think it's valid. What do you think I should do? Hmm. I think not all criticism merits the same kind of attention. Sure. So if I am getting pushback from, you know, a former coworker at CT or an organizational leader who I really respect and who knows me and I know them and there's a relationship there, I'm going to weigh that criticism and pushback much more significantly than I would like a mean Twitter comment from a troll. Yes. You know, like, I'm not going to let a troll keep me up at night. But if my former Good. supervisor is saying, right. hey, you might have wanted to reword that. I'm like, okay, I I can see why he's saying that. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can receive that. Um, I think having good editors is important for any writer because editors can oftentimes help you prevent putting your foot in your mouth or like rushing forward to say something that you don't actually mean or just wording things a little bit more carefully. Yes. (laughs) Which is why like when I'm reading other people's work, I give more weight to something that I know has gone through an editorial review than some like someone throwing up a blog post. I mean, blog posts can have their, they have their function and their value, 
but I do still very much value an editorial review Mm. and I can think of writers who maybe need more of an editorial review, but I will not (laughs) name them here. (laughs) I would be one of them uh, who always needs an editorial review on anything that I write, including all my emails. Mm. Um, Let me go to the flip side of that and ask, um, I am sure there are people you like and are friends with that you also disagree with. Mm. And how do you work on disagreeing well? (laughs) Well, disagreement, any kind of conversation that involves a difference of values, of worldview, of political convictions is best done in the form of in-person relationship. So yes, there are times when you have to hash something out with a friend over the phone or, I mean, text is never great, but maybe email. But when we can talk about difficult things in person, it's much easier to remember the humanity of the other person. You're talking to a flesh and blood image bearer with their own life story and history and... Um, denominational tradition or Mm -hmm. church tradition, you just, it's easier to remember that these are humans trying to hash something out important, usually with limited information or, you know, we see through a glass darkly. Um, And so I think in-person is always better. I think having the conversation is important for the sake of um, relational depth and authenticity. I know, you know, there's the truism that, you know, if you want to create family drama at Thanksgiving dinner, talk about religion or politics. But I would relish the opportunity to talk about <laughs> religion and politics at the Thanksgiving dinner or at some family dinner because I value how the people who I love see the world yes and I have something to learn from them you know my parents we certainly don't see eye to eye on everything but I love and respect them I know that they have thought through these issues and oftentimes they can help me see something Mm. even like generationally they can give me a certain kind of perspective that I couldn't have on my own and I think at the end of the day that's probably true for anyone who is coming to conversations like that in good faith that you, you have something to learn from them and having a mutual posture of maybe you can teach me something that I am not seeing for myself is really important. Because all of us, I think, especially today, are tempted to get into ideological silos and only be in relationship with people who are like us. And there's a comfort in that. And there's a sort of, I know that we're on the same page and so we can relate, but I continue to believe in the value of friendship across many divides sure you know those are all wonder humility um being willing to humble yourself and learn from others Mm -hmm. um ensuring you have friendships that are across divides and and being welcoming of the conversation instead Mm of it automatically when it comes up being a point of contention having open hands and open hearts to desire to have the hard conversations. Mm-hmm. Those are all wonderful points. Um, I will say, though, because I've had, I've had the inverse experience of that, which is I think the harder the topic 
And the more difficult the conversation, the more relational capital you probably need starting out. Wow, that's really good. So an acquaintance from high school who's like, I want to debate you on your Facebook page. (laughs) I'm like, we don't have the relational capital to have this conversation. Yes. But if we, by contrast, are touching base regularly, we're invested in many dimensions of each other's lives. It's not like it's not just, oh, you're my sparring partner every six months because I know we think differently about this topic. And so I want to debate you. That's not the, the best way to have those. I think. The difference between a debate and a conversation is a conversation, um, even about difficult things, is served by relational capital and undergirded by that relational trust. If you haven't tweeted that out, you should, because that is really <laughs> good. I really, I really like that. The, the level of the intensity of the conversation should relate to the human capital you have yes. with that individual. That yes. is really good. Yeah. Um, uh, last question I wanted to ask you is, uh, you said you've spoken on many college campuses, kind of been involved, especially at other Christ-centered universities and colleges. What are you seeing with today's college students um, that interests you or that mm. excites you or that worries you? Mm-hmm. Um, just what's your observations of the generation that's right behind you mm-hmm. um, coming up through uh, our Christian colleges? Mm. That's a good question. Well, I think, and this is true for my alma mater, and I think it's anecdotally true for a lot of other Christian colleges I've visited, which is that there is more of an institutional valuing of ethnic diversity, and that's informing and shaping student life. It's not just something that you see in like the alumni magazine. Mm -hmm. And I think students, I wonder if students are in large part, um, driving that, 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 that is a value of their generation. They are on our campus. Yes. Yeah. That it's not that students want a campus that reflects the diversity of the kingdom of God. Right. Um, and that, not to say that that hasn't been true in years past, but I think that's becoming more pressing. It's becoming more pressing from an institutional standpoint as well. This is not an optional goal, you know. It's both practical and it's kingdom oriented. Yes. 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 I'm interested in how students are navigating the technology thing. So I'm an older millennial. (laughs) So I didn't grow up using text messages. I certainly didn't grow up with a smartphone. I didn't grow up with Snapchat or I think it's TikTok is the new one. That's the, the yes, that's yes. what I'm hearing. <laughs> so I think, um, and this is true for all of us, but it is uniquely true for students where you find yourself needing to concentrate on texts, like on the written word <laughs> for long periods of time, thinking about habits of either like technological fasting or just training your mind to know how to focus. Mm. I mean, I didn't have the distractions of the internet when I was a student for the most part, and I found it incredibly difficult to sit in the library for hours studying a, a topic, right. right? And so I can't imagine what today's students are, how they're fo- uh, how they're facing into that. Mm. But I would think that that's kind of a pressing concern. Um, this is like another negative one. I don't mean it to sound negative. I think... What I hear from friends who are teachers or professors on college campuses is that there is a very high level of anxiety among students to um, like perform well 
they're they don't have a lot of self-confidence and part of that is maybe being afraid to ask questions in class Mm. because what if I ask a question that's dumb or what if I ask a question that's not allowed or something yeah but what's unfortunate about that is that you need a level of intellectual curiosity and like a willingness to just be bold and ask a stupid question for the sake of learning um so I don't know where that anxiety is coming from like a performance anxiety you know and there the studies bear out that students are more stressed mm-hmm. than they've ever been and you know there's a lot written right now on on the counseling centers on campuses mm-hmm. uh, being just overwhelmed and, th- and there's a good part of that where students mm. are saying hey you know I I have a mental issue that I want to work through or mm-hmm. I had something happen to me I want to work through and there's right. uh, some stigma that has been lost but then there's yes. the the opposite end of the it seems to be more anxiety than mm-hmm. ever it's good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast and for sharing with our students today. And um, we'll look forward to the uh, next snarky tweet um, or maybe book or wh- whatever it is or that's next like on non, the agenda. Or just non-snarky, kind tweet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I throw those in there as well. Good, so. good. Well, um, thanks for listening, everyone, to the Gray Story podcast. Music was written and produced by Dr. Wally Brath, Assistant Professor of Worship Arts at Grace College. And thank you so much to Andrew Palladino and Rick Neer, our co-producers. And if you can do us a huge favor and rate or comment on this podcast wherever you found it from, we'd be so appreciative. Until next time, live your best grace story today.